What a blessing, ladies, for you to share with us all that the Lord is doing to save life. Well, good afternoon, God speak. If you will open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7 and 8 for our message, Theology of Freedom. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our servants team will get one of those. And this is communion weekend, so at the end of this service, we'll be having communion. And what great truths are in front of us to experience communion. I don't know if your experience was like my experience, but I came to Christ in a very dramatic, radical way, and I was set free. As Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I had experienced so much freedom in my soul from the bondage of my sin at the age of 19. It's like you have that honeymoon stage where just like everything you ask God, to, he just does it. It's like he knows that your baby faith needs to be fed and nourished as much as possible. As you get older, he uh, gives uh, further lengths of time in between the prayer and the answer so your faith grows in tenacity. And God, he knows how to raise kids. But I went through that honeymoon stage, and then I was thunderstruck that I started wrestling with some of the old inclinations and temptations that I used to have. And I had the wrong theology that as soon as you receive Jesus, all your worries and carries have gone away. You're no longer going to be tempted. You're not going to struggle with hating your coworkers' guts that irritate you to death. You're not going to struggle with lust. You're not going to desire the, some of this old life. And what happened is I began to be torn apart inside, internally, because I did not immediately plug into a church. So I was on my own reading my Bible for about a six-month period of time because of the nature in which I got saved all by myself, half drunk in my living room. And so it takes some time, right, for the sanctification process and to learn some things. And I started discovering a civil war inside of me. A civil war that Paul the Apostle describes in Galatians chapter 5. He says that the spirit and the flesh lust and fight against each other. And I'm sure that you've never experienced that in your whole life. But I'm just going to act like maybe that's your experience too. That if, if I sincerely love Jesus, I'm forgiven of my sins, and his spirit now lives inside of me, why am I struggling with my old nature, right? Didn't he eradicate that? Didn't he pull it up by the roots? Didn't he throw it away? And, and, and why would I ever be bothered with the old nature since I have a new nature? Because when you're a young Christian and you don't have good theology of freedom and to know what the Bible says... I actually thought I was starting to lose my mind. I started becoming schizophrenic inside my head, like, I really, I really want to love God. No, I really want to go do that sin. No, I really want to love God. No, I really want to do that sin. I really want to go to church. Oh, no, you don't want to. Now, only because it's uh, time appropriate, I think I was having some spiritual dysphoria, right, which is in inner conflict, and so the inner conflict is something that you have to become aware of. So it's not very pretty. It's not very catchy. Uh, the uh, young millennial, millennial in his skinny jeans preaching with his laser show is not going to be sharing with you a message entitled, The Theology of Freedom. But let me just share with you, right thinking will lead to right living. 
And so the way you think about things in your mind has to be informed with God's mind, God's heart. What, what does God say? And then I embrace that by faith that this is truth, this is reality, because the devil is trying to lie to me, and my flesh likes those lies because I have a gravitational pull towards what is wrong because of my old nature. So we want to talk, now this is like getting in an airplane. If you've ever went over farm ground, I flew last Monday to Sacramento, and I'm going over, and I had no idea surrounding the airport of Sacramento how much farmland there was. It was huge, right? But you're at thousands of feet above the ground, so it's like these little postage stamps of all these fields. And that's what this is going to be, because there's a large portion that I'm going to read, and I can only highlight and touch on nuggets that I hope you'll take away, and also whet your appetite to dig in a little more to understand God's promises about you and I being free. Those who are struggling here, who does that include? If your temperature is 98.6 and you have a pulse, this is going to be your life in some way, shape, or form. Even those who really say, I don't struggle with any of these things. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. As one old preacher said, the Christian that is lulled into sleep to think that this battle is not going to be his is pitched his tent on the top of a volcano and one day the volcano is going to go off. And it's going to go off underneath him, inside him, around him, and he's going to get his rear end torched by some lava. I added that last bit. The old preacher didn't say that, okay? So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read this passage of Scripture, anyway, a portion of it, in Romans chapter 7, as we look at theology of freedom. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, this is the point. Don't think this is a marriage counseling session. This is an illustration. Some of you are already totally derailed, all right, just because of this text. So then, verse 3, if while her husband lives, she marries another, just to repeat it, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve the, in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Father, we ask by your Spirit and your precious name, Jesus, that you would open our understanding to the depths and the mysteries that are going on inside of us by your Holy Spirit, by this new nature that you have given to us, that we are redeemed and righteous in your sight, but also 
indwelling alongside that, our old nature, our fallen man that is struggling back and forth. God, give us grace to understand this, comprehend us, and bring us into a greater place of the reality of your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The passage, quite quickly, as I said, we're flying as an airplane, and here's these little uh, postage stamp of fields. I have to move quite quickly to get a, the breadth. Sometimes you dig into a few verses. Sometimes you have to see a bigger picture to understand the whole idea of freedom. The illustration that Paul the Apostle uses about this, first of all, from Romans chapter 5 through Romans chapter 8, is probably the densest section of all theology within the Bible. Okay, And this density of theology, which makes you actually pay attention, you have to lean into it. It's not some easy narrative story. You have to actually dig in and wake up and pay uh, close attention to the detail of what Paul's trying to say. Now, the first is an illustration. What he wants you and I to know, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian. If you love Jesus and I love Jesus, this is true. That just as, picture it for a moment, the illustration, that you're a woman married to a man, all right? Now, because the law says, as long as that husband lives, she can't go marry another. Once again, this is not marriage counseling. You're like, well, I'm married, I'm not. Stop. That's not what his illustration is. We could talk about marriage counseling at a different time, okay? What he's saying is, if that husband dies, there is no law that binds her to that man, Correct? right? He, he's dead. Her husband's dead. So there is now no tie. When a person dies, the law has no power over them. So say I robbed a bank yesterday afternoon. The cops show up here today. You guys didn't know. I had a secret life as a bank robber, right? They show up. We have a shootout. They kill me. Uh, they're not going to throw my dead body in the back of a police car, take it to a jail cell till I have an arraignment, and drag my dead corpse into the courtroom before a judge, right? Why? Because I'm dead. I can't serve any time. I can't. I'm dead. The coroner takes me, and they go put me in the ground somewhere. So the truth that he is saying is that something has died. You and I, in this illustration, have died to the law. The law, if you're a dead person, the moral standard of righteousness that depends on your human performance, when you die, it no longer has any power over you, just like the law. You can't, even if you've broken the law, it has no power over you. But if the woman, once it's dead, then he says, steps into this illustration, but as Jesus rose from the dead and now you're married to him... You're no longer, you've died to the law, and now you're married in a new relationship to a Savior that is based on his righteousness, his performance, and how he has accomplished all of this for you. The simple answer is, you have died to the law, so the law has no power over you. Any law, the Ten Commandments, the Old Testament, even your own made-up-in-your-mind moral law of righteousness or standards that you come up with, do you know that every... Every single subculture of humanity has its own moral code. I used to hang out with partiers and druggies and stoners and drug dealers. Do you know that even, do you know that even drug dealers have virtue signaling? I always give you a fair, fair cut, 
right? They, they go on about how accurate they are in their measurements. And like, I, like I'm, a, I'm a righteous drug dealer. The guy across the street, he's cutting it with others. It's like, it doesn't matter where you go. People have virtue signaling. That's their, their standard of righteousness. But as long as you think today you're failing in some moral standard of righteousness based on the Mosaic law, the moral law of your parents, the moral law of your social group, and you're failing that, you feel condemned. But when you came to Jesus, you died to all those moral standards for righteousness' sake, and we're going to keep, continue to build on this. So I'm not going to ask you to repeat out loud because I don't really care for that when preachers do that. But I want you to understand this. In your mind, tell yourself, I have died to the law. It has no power over me. Okay? I have died to the law. It has no power over me. Because you cannot be charged with a crime if you are dead. First point in theology of freedom. You have to understand this. Because people will tell me, even Christians, well, you know, I, I, I live by the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, I do. You don't know I'm an upright, you know. So I just tell them, no, you've got to die to the Ten Commandments. <gasps> How dare you? Don't you believe in the Ten Commandments? I absolutely do. Hang on. We're not done with all the ideas of freedom here. The theology. Hang on. Continue on in verse 7. We're moving fast. Sin, this is a bizarre thing, you guys. You've got to wrap your head around this. Sin... <laughs> weaponizes the law against you. Sin and the deceptiveness takes God's perfect moral law and weaponizes it to defeat you. Look what Paul says. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, this is what sin does, sin in this whole passage is the principle of a fallen nature that's operating inside of every human being. We received this SIN positive diagnosis through the hereditary bloodline of Adam. Adam and Eve gave you and I a genetic condition and it has a spiritual connotation and a moral connotation and that is we are bent towards sin. Our thought life, our emotions, our attitude, everything has been, the, the doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean you're a total depraved psycho. It means, total depravity means that every single part of your psychological makeup has been tainted and touched by sin. Every part of you. Every part of you has been touched and tainted by sin. So, in verse 8, but sin taking opportunity... This word is a military term that sin within you, inside of you, sets up a military base camp to destroy your life. <laughs> it's weird because I can fight enemies out here, but what about the traitor inside of me? This fallen nature, this sinful nature. Check it out as he begins, continues. Taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. For I delighted in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members. So he delighted in God's law, God's perfect law. When I read the Ten Commandments, I go, amen to every single one of those. 
That's the way I should live. That's right. God's word is right. But there's another law, which means a principle that's working in my members, my fallen sinful nature, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. You see, what does it say? Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment in verse 8, produced in me all manner of evil desire. Because before I knew there was a law, I was free from that law because I didn't know there was one. It's like the story of the hotel that's right on the, I mean, literally right on the coast. And, And when the management was getting ready to open up, they thought, you know, people are right on the coast. People might be tempted to actually fish right off, you know, right out their balcony into the water. So they put signs up on every balcony, no fishing allowed. And so they just had struggle after struggle after struggle. People would show up there, they'd see the sign, they'd get their fishing gear, right? They've got heavy weights that are hitting the windows below, they're causing all these kind of problems, they're like, what's going on? And then they had a revelation, they went through and they removed all the signs, no fishing, and everybody stopped fishing because they, ne- they never even had that thought. Wet paint, don't touch. Wet paint, don't touch. It says it's wet. I bet it's not wet anymore. I bet it's dry. I mean, come on. Wet paint. I don't want to get paint on my... I bet it's dry. Nope, still wet. It's like the dad that left. He's going out. The babysitter's got the three kids. He looks at the four-year-old, and he doesn't even know why he said it. It just like some weird, random thought went through his mind when he's saying goodbye to the kids, taking the, the, the mom, wife out on a date. And he looks at his four-year-old and says, whatever you do, don't stuff beans up your nose. And out they went. They get a call an hour and a half later at the restaurant. Please come home. We've got to take your son to the emergency. He stuffed a bunch of beans up his nose. They go and extract them, and he just, you know, the thought never went through his mind. But as soon as he said, don't stuff beans up your nose, I wonder if we have beans in the cupboard, you know, and go and feed them. You see, sin, taking the opportunity from a commandment, then stirs up the desire to break that rule. Sin rises within you when there's a moral standard that you can't do that. Don't you dare do that. And immediately, like in your mind, I never even thought about doing that, but now that's all I can think of. (laughs) Now that I've heard it, now that's all I want to do. This is what the law does. God, knowing this, gives the law for a specific purpose, knowing that your reaction will do that so that you will come to the awareness of the activation of this deceptive principle of sin against a holy, righteous standard of God's word. Because he has to bring you to the place of recognition and then the guilt of shame of that to bring the good news, but my son is the answer. If he does not have that, if you do not have that, if you don't see your need and you're just a good person, like good people go to heaven, you'll never see your need for Jesus. So the law, as he continues on, you see, in this process that begins to uh, unfold for us, I just read one of my verses out of order because of the way my pages were lying, so please forgive me. But verse 9 says, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. 
And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Now, why is that? The commandment's supposed to bring me life. It ends up producing death inside of me. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The commandment stirs up your fallen sinful nature to rise up and become exceedingly sinful, so that once again, you can see in yourself your bent nature so that you realize you need help. I can't live up to God's standard. As a matter of fact, when you, I hear about God's standard, now it makes me want to break God's standard. But it, is it a problem with God's word? Is God's word, in essence, evil that it's do, producing that? No, no, no. What does he say? He wants to make sure you know, and I know, verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. God's word is good. What's the problem? My sinful nature. That's the problem. God's word's perfect. And because God's perfect word causes a evil self-deception of sin within me, I'm the problem, not God's word. Right? I'm the problem. You would never fully understand 1 Corinthians 15, 56, when Paul states this, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. What gives sin such a strong, bulging bicep to kick your rear end? The holy standard that he uses to stir you up and then you so miserably fail that you get into a cycle of longing to please God and failure to please God and longing to please God and failure to please God in this cycle till you finally just come to a place of despair. Now, some of you are Christians, and you've been walking with Jesus a long time, and here you are right now. This is your cycle. This is the cycle you're in. You know Jesus. You know he's forgiven you of your sins. But somehow, since this is the case of the sin that's stirred up in me, well, how come the law gave me a commandment but didn't give me any power to perform it? Right? Why, why would God give me a standard and then say, yeah, here's the standard, but you don't have the power to perform that standard? Look at what Paul teaches us in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal or fleshly in my fallen nature, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. You ever just a mystery to your own self? Some of you guys are looking at me like you are just been sucking on lemons and you're the holy chosen. Don't give me that garbage. I know who you are. How do I know who you are? Because I know who I am. And you got the same stuff going on. So smug. Well, maybe you're one of those sitting on the volcano. And the lava's on the way. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, or fallen sinful nature, 